Well, good morning, church. Hopefully you are warmer this week than in the past, and uh, it is just really good to gather here and worship. I was up here listening to your voices, and it's just a beautiful morning to get together and to worship a risen Savior. Well, if you are visiting with us today, I just want to welcome you. My name is Phil Shields. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and we are so thrilled that you are here with us. If you have been here for decades, we're glad you're here too. We are in the middle of a great series called Explore God. And really, Explore God is this series where we're tackling some of life's tough questions on faith and on Christianity. And so this morning, we're going to be tackling another one of those. And the question for us today is, is Jesus really God? Is Jesus really God? And so for many of us, we enter this room and we might have a variety of different thoughts on that. And I hope by the end of this morning that you have either taken some further steps in discovering who Jesus is or you are reminded of the risen Savior and the impact he has on our life. See, this is an important question for us all to wrestle with at different times of our life. It's something that we have to answer. And we're going to look at a variety of things this morning. But what I want you to understand as we leave here today is that as we dive into the scriptures and as we look at the Bible and what the Bible has to say about Jesus, that we understand that Jesus' identity as God has implications for your identity. Jesus' identity as God has implications for your identity. And we as a people are constantly looking at our identity. Our identity is constantly being formed all the days of our life. And so we need to see that impact. Well, I can think back, I can remember a Valentine's Day that, uh, and just a reminder for those of you that are lost in the calendar, that's coming this week, okay? And for the rest of you that just view it as a Hallmark holiday, have a great day that, on the 14th. But it was a Valentine's Day, and I can remember this reservation that my wife and I had at a nice restaurant. You might be asking, well, how did you know it was a nice one? Well, there's two reasons. One, I had eaten there before, and the other reason I knew it was nice is because it was one of these restaurants that was not going to hand you a menu when you walked in on Valentine's Day. They already had the meal, the meal planned for you. It was one of those, that to, for some reason, that means it's a great restaurant. So we entered and we had our Valentine's Day meal. Several courses came out that night and, and were brought there. But my choice to be there, my decision to be at that restaurant, meant that there were implications that I was going to have to deal with. One of those implications was there was a high chance I was going to go home hungry because I didn't get to choose what I was going to eat. But we make these choices, and we make cho choices for romance. And so we had this meal. Now that's a simple choice that we make in our life. But when we think of the choices in our life that we make every day, you might be looking at this, and for some of you, making decisions and making choices brings out a lot of anxiety. 
You need a restaurant like that because you don't want to make decisions. Or for others of us, we love tackling that. There was a Columbia research project that was done that they found that the average person makes 70 decisions every day. 70 decisions every day. Now, let's add this up. That's 25,500 decisions a year. Now, are you a little nervous yet? See, that's a lot of decisions. Now, if the average lifespan is 70, then that means that over 70 years, you will have made 1,788,500 decisions in your life. As Albert Camus said, life is the sum of all your choices. Now, I tell you that, I give you that number, because for some of us, now we finally have an excuse to say, this is why I look tired. Because you're going to be making decisions all of your life. And it's also, whenever we look at this, we have to understand that decisions are a part of our lives. We have to make a decision. And this morning, as we look at this question, we have to understand that decisions are important. And the decision you make when it comes to the question, is Jesus really God, is a vital one. You might be going, well, I don't know how important that is. And during World War II, Winston Churchill was forced to make a painful decision. See, the British Secret Service had broken the Nazi code uh, that, they, that they had, and they informed Churchill that they had done this, and that the Germans were going to bomb Coventry. And so at that point, Churchill had two decisions. The first one was to evacuate the citizens and get them out, which would inform the Germans that the British had broken the code. Or the second decision was to take no action and to allow whatever was going to take place to happen, which would kill hundreds, but keep it a secret so the information would keep flowing and possibly more and more lives would be saved. Churchill made a decision. He had to choose. And he followed the second one so that more and more lives would be saved in the future. Now, you might be saying, well, I don't have to deal with decisions like that, and I want to tell you, you do. Because the decision that you make on the question, is Jesus really God, has the same implications that Churchill dealt with. See, my prayer for you and for me is that we would come to a conclusion on this question and that we would rejoice over the conclusion we come to. And so in order to kind of dive into this, I want to encourage you to either grab a Bible in front of you or open your Bible to the book of Philippians in the New Testament. If you're new to the Bible, just open the, the front cover that's in front of you and look at the table of contents. It's in the uh, second half of the Bible, but you're going to want to open to Philippians 2. Now, because we are asking this question in church, I feel like we should go to the scriptures to look for an answer. And so we're going to go there. But I want to give you a little bit of background on what's happening in Philippians 2. This is a, a book of the Bible that is a letter. It's written by a man named Paul. And so he is writing this letter to this church that is in Philippi. So he's writing to people that believe in Jesus. 
And so he's writing to them, and at the beginning of this chapter, you're going to end up seeing that Paul ends up writing to them so that they would become unified. He uses words like like-minded, and that he would take great joy if they were unified together. And so he's writing this. And i got to tell you that whenever you read that, you end up in the first four verses going, well, that's what I think a church should be like. And so if you're investigating this whole church thing in Jesus, I want to tell you, and I want to open up uh, and let you behind the curtain a little bit. See, Paul's writing this, and he's encouraging this unity and this like-mindedness because people are not perfect. In fact, we're a mess. And so you might have entered this place, and your expectation is, is that you're entering a church, and you will never be hurt in this place, or nobody's going to come against you. And i got to tell you, I'm sorry to say it, but we here at Wheaton Bible Church are broken people. We make mistakes. In fact, I, I want to use myself as an example. I'm not going to point to anybody else that's sitting here, but i got to tell you that this past week, I ended up becoming jealous of somebody else. And I don't think we would say that jealousy is a good thing. In fact, I got frustrated with my wife at one point, and I'll admit, we had an argument this past week. You know, whenever I look at the week, I got to tell you, I disagreed with my boss at some point this week and thought that I could do a better job than him. And at one point this week, I ate sugary cereal for breakfast and for dessert after dinner. So this just proves I am a broken person. And yet I come back and gather with others because Jesus has called us to be like-minded and full of joy and loving and serving one another just like Paul writes at the beginning of this chapter. And so if your expectations are perfection, I want to just, I want to dash those expectations right now and tell you it's okay. Come in with your brokenness and join the rest of our, us as broken people. Because we have an example that leads us to what we are supposed to live like, and I believe that that is Jesus. See, Paul writes this, and he, and he talks about unity and striving, and i got to tell you, that is a beautiful thing, because unity brings peace. And when peace is present in our life, then we feel whole. And the answers that we desire become known to us. And it's because peace is a person. I believe that peace is Jesus. And so in Philippians 2, I want you to see what Paul has to say about this subject of Jesus being God. And we're going to jump to verse 5 of chapter 2. It says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
So Paul writes this letter, and he writes this letter because we need an example on how to live, how to live with one another, but he also gives some answers to who Jesus Christ is. And so he points immediately to Jesus. And for many of us in this room, we would say that Jesus is God and and Paul is pointing in the right direction. But for some of us, we might say, well, I believe that Jesus walked this earth, but I believe that he was just a good moral teacher. That the teachings of Jesus are really wise to live by and those are great things. But I got to tell you that the the way that Jesus views his identity has implications on your life. And and what he looks at impacts the certainty of your life, how your life is going to go, and how you can move through all the years that we have. So I want to walk through this section and take some things into consideration so the first thing that I think we need to understand to the, this question is understanding a key term. Now that term is the term incarnation. Now if, you're, if this is a new word to you, you're coming in and I got to tell you, you have now learned something new and you can go home feeling successful, okay? The word incarnation means this, it means the embodiment of a deity or spirit in some earthly form. That's what this means. So when Paul says that Jesus was God, he is saying that the incarnation came, that Jesus was there. Now here's what's interesting. The the, uh, dictionary, Merriam-Webster, also gives this definition. So they first say that, then they say this, the union of divinity with humanity in Jesus Christ. Now, did you hear that word that the dictionary is using? The union, the unity of divinity with humanity, with Jesus Christ. Now, whenever the dictionary is saying union, they are getting that because Paul is writing about unity coming, and unity can only come to a people when they surrender and recognize who Jesus Christ is, because Jesus Christ is the one who brings unity. And the way that he does that is because he was the incarnation. And so this is a key term for us to understand that there was actually this this deity in human form. And so that leads us down this path. And now it's not only important for us to understand a term like incarnation, but then we have to ask another question. If we're asking, is Jesus really God? Then we have to ask the question, Did Jesus ever claim to be God? We might say that Jesus is a great moral teacher, but we have to look at his teachings and say, well, what did Jesus say about himself? And that's an important thing. So here's the deal. Most teachers don't do this, but I'm going to give you the answer right away. Jesus claimed to be God. Now you might be thinking, well, man, that is a bold move, and you're right. Jesus claimed to be God. He said that he was. And so if you were to look through the Gospels, and if you're investigating this, I want you to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and to look at what Jesus says in those books. But in John 5, what we find is that Jesus is healing people. Yeah, he's healing them. He's performing these miracles. And all this healing is happening. And what he ends up doing is he ends up healing on what the Jews would call the Sabbath. It was the day of rest. 
And so Jesus sees those that need to be healed, and he heals them. Well, Jesus also has this group of people known as the religious leaders that are following him. And they're looking at him, and they end up accusing him of breaking the law, breaking the Sabbath by healing somebody on the Sabbath day. Because you weren't supposed to work on that day. Now what's amazing is that Jesus is bringing healing to a life, something that is absolutely beautiful. And these other group of men are, are persecuting him and telling him that they shouldn't be doing that. What they didn't realize is the hypocrites that they were being. As the religious leaders, they were actually doing the same thing by following Jesus and accusing him because they were the judges. They were the ones that were bringing judgment, which means that they were also working on the Sabbath. So they end up, they end up saying, you know, you can't be doing this. And Jesus ends up defending himself in John 5. And he says this, my father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew his identity, and so he was living his identity out, and the people around him knew what he was saying. They were shocked that he would claim to be equal with God, that he was God. Now see, this is important because the Jews were what is called a monotheistic culture, society. Now monotheistic means that there is a belief that there is only one God. So in this culture, he's not saying that he is one of many gods, he is saying that standing before you right now healing is God in human form. Now this makes it very dangerous. Jesus is willing to take this on, and so in the midst of great opposition, he is saying, I claim it because I know that this is my identity, and this is why I came to earth, to claim it in front of all those that were present. In fact, at the end of Jesus' life, whenever he's arrested and he's brought uh, before the religious leaders, they ask him again, do you believe that you're the Son of God? Are you the Son of God? And in Mark 14, 62, Jesus ends up saying, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. So why do I take you there? It's because if we're going to ask, is Jesus really God? We have to ask, did he ever claim it? Because gods are going to claim their, their rightful place. And so Jesus is saying, I'm not hiding my identity. This is who I am. And because that is my identity, it's my entire message that I have come. I've come for the humanity that I created. I came to rescue. So in asking, is Jesus really God, we can see that Jesus claimed to be God, and now we have to decide what are the options. Now, here's the deal. For some of you, you would say, I am a Christian, I've already decided, and I have to tell you, you have to make this decision every day, because this decision determines how you will live. 
So if Jesus is really God, what are the options? Well, we're going to jump back to Philippians 2 here for a second, but I want you to see that there are some options that we have to deal with. So I want to walk through those. We're going to put them on the screen here a little bit, but I want you to understand what takes place. See, Jesus claimed to be God. Now, option one is this, that Jesus claimed to be God, but he knew that what he was claiming was false. So Jesus knew this. It was like he came as a con man. And so that's the one option here, is that he came and he knew what he was saying was false. Now, if you say Jesus is a good moral teacher, then I have to tell you that if you're saying he's a good moral teacher but knew what he was claiming was false, that doesn't make him a good moral teacher anymore. So if he is claiming this and he knows that it's false, what is he doing? He is lying and he is intentionally deceiving those that are in front of him. And it means that the book that is in the pew rack in front of you is full of lies talking about this person. See, that, if he knows it, then it leads to another place in this, this option. It leads to that Jesus was a hypocrite. Now, why would Jesus be a hypocrite? It's because in his teachings, if you go to it, he talks about being an honest people, that we should live with honesty. Well, if he is claiming this and it's a false claim, then he is being a hypocrite because he's not being honest at all. Now, what's also worse with this is that as you start looking at this, he's asking people to put their eternal destiny in his hands. And if he knows his claims are false, that makes him an evil person. That makes him an evil person. And so he is doing this. He's preying on people with this. But on top of all of that, on top of claiming false, being a hypocrite, being evil, the last thing that you have to recognize in this option is that he was a fool. Because he went to a cross and died for all that false belief. Now, that's option one. That you can look at this and say, well, this is what is taking place. This is what was happening with Jesus. So that's the first option. And I'd love for you to keep that in your mind. Several years ago, there was a, a comedy sitcom on NBC known as The Office. The Office was a show that was literally that. It was a show of people working in a, an office that sold paper. One of the main characters in that show was known as Michael Scott. Michael Scott was the manager. And I got to tell you, the, the thing with Michael Scott is that he was an awful, awful manager. But he didn't know it. He had no idea how he was. In fact, the guy never really operated in reality. He had a mug on his desk that said, world's best boss, and he bought it for himself. <laughs> so the guy never operated in reality. And what is, even though it's fine for an actor to portray this, when it comes to Jesus, we have to understand that there is another view that we can look at. See, it's possible to be confident and wrong. Just like Michael Scott, the second option for Jesus is being exactly like him. So, 
Jesus could be claiming to be God, but he didn't know his claims were false. So option two starts with that, that Jesus walked around, but he had no idea what he was claiming was false. And so what that would mean is that we would look at that today and go, well, this guy is mentally crazy. He's nuts. See, to mistakenly claim to be God in a monotheistic society becomes extremely dangerous, and he should have died earlier than what he did. But he ends up doing this, and what this leads to is that it leads to Jesus becoming a delusional person living an unbalanced life. That's what it goes to. If he didn't understand that his claims were false, then that's what it leads to, an unbalanced life. Now, let me just pause by saying this. If you were to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and read his teachings... It would be very hard to find somebody that is mentally unbalanced and look at that and go, well, man, these are great teachings. You would find the the false things right there. We don't find that he seems unbalanced. But if we want to continue on, if he was delusional, then that would mean that he was extremely unstable. That he was extremely unstable, meaning that he would be retreating from reality. He would be running away from it. Now, if you go back to the Gospels and you look at it, what you find is you don't find a good moral teacher who doesn't understand things. You find somebody that is running in and dealing with the reality right in front of him. In fact, he says, put me in the center of it. Who's going to sit and, and to touch a leper? Who is going to be around somebody that is around all these outcasts? Jesus, if he is extremely unstable, is going into some incredible places and bringing healing. But we have to, to put this option out there. That Jesus didn't know that his claims were false. So, option one is that he did know that they were false. Option two is that he didn't know that they were false. And now there's a third option. And the third option is is that Jesus is God. Now, that might seem crazy to some degree, but what we find is that Paul ends up taking us to this. Now, remember, Jesus' identity as God has implications for your identity. And let me tell you that where you place your identity impacts everything. It impacts every area of your life. And the reason for that is because that's what Jesus wanted to deal with. So when we look at this, we have to say, okay, if Jesus is God, what is Paul saying about this in Philippians 2? Well, look at verse 6. See, in verse 6, Paul ends up saying, who being in very nature God. So he is saying this this Jesus that we believe in, his nature is God. Now, the reason Paul's stating it this way is because he's wanting to make an extremely strong point. In fact, in another letter that Paul writes in Colossians, he says that Jesus has all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That's who Jesus is all the fullness of the deity. So Paul could have come out and said, Jesus is God. 
But let's remember, that could mean a lot of things. In fact, New Age religion would say that you and I are part of God. And so that there are many pieces of God. And so Paul isn't saying that he's one of many. He's saying whenever he gives this very nature of God, the meaning of that is that Jesus, the one that we worship, the one that he's writing about, is the one true God of the entire universe. Paul's not leaving it open for debate. He's writing this, and let me tell you, Paul writes these letters, and he writes them being shipwrecked, being put in prison, being persecuted. And he's saying, this is the one true God, because the identity of Jesus had implications on his life, and he couldn't walk away from it. So we see this. Now Paul went on, and he says this. He says, that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Why is Paul saying that? In some uh, uh, Bibles, it uses the word grasp, that Jesus didn't try to grasp or hold on to this. And the reason for that is because Paul is giving more meaning here for us. He's saying this because in order for Jesus to do this, He's saying that Jesus already had equality with God. It wasn't something he was trying to move towards. He already had it. And the reason he's giving it up, or the reason that he's saying that he's not trying to use it for his own advantage, is because you can only give away what you already have. So Jesus already had this. So the nature of of him is God. That is who he is, and Paul's declaring that to these people in Philippi. Now, not only is there a nature of God in Jesus, what we also find is that Jesus comes as a selfless servant. Look at verses 7 and 8. He ends up talking there. Paul writes about how he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant by leaving the the deity form and coming in human likeness. Now, why did Jesus do this? Because here's the thing, we got to go back to the term of incarnation. See, whenever we look at this, humanity may be moving away from God, but God never moves away from humanity. And because of that, Jesus comes in human form to serve the ones that he created. Now, you might still be going, well, I believe that there's many gods, and I'm going to tell you, you will never find a god that comes and serves the one that he created. To love them that way. See, so much of a servant that he became human, and not only became human, but he ended up living out his full identity and going to a cross to die. He was selfless. This impacts people so much that you have to see this quote by this historian atheist known as Robert Wright. Robert Wright ends up saying this, we can be pretty sure the crucifixion actually happened, in part because it made so little theological sense. Throughout history, gods had been beings to whom you made sacrifices. Now here was a god that not only demanded no ritual sacrifices from you, but himself made sacrifices. Indeed, the ultimate sacrifice for you. Now, you might be saying, I'm an atheist, and i got to tell you, when I read this from an atheist perspective, I'm blown away. 
Because what Paul is doing is he's pointing directly to the selfless servant, saying it doesn't make any sense, but sometimes love doesn't make sense, and love comes in radical ways and lives out full identity and goes to a cross for those that he created. So Jesus was this selfless servant. But then Paul points out one other thing, verses 9 through 11. He points out that Jesus was full of resurrection and and exaltation. That he is going to be resurrected and exalted. See, this is important because in order for Jesus to be exalted by God, it meant that death couldn't hold him. See, we celebrate the cross as as Christians, that Jesus went to the cross for our sins, for our sins. But if Jesus stayed there, what kind of God would he be that death could hold him? And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Death can't hold him because he is the one true God of the universe. And so he came and he died for our sins and he rose from the dead and he overcame that death. Now, Here's the deal. I recognize that for some of you, you might object to this thought. But I want to encourage you that the amount of eyewitness reports of Jesus coming back from death is staggering. There's eyewitness reports. Or you might be saying, well, I don't know that Jesus really died. And I got to tell you, Jesus was given into the hands of the Romans who knew about death by crucifixion. There were days that they ended up crucifying 6,000 people. They knew what it meant to be dead on a cross. They made sure of it. And so he was dead. They did not ever take somebody off a cross that was still alive. And so he, he died. On top of that, he was buried in a grave that many people would know where that grave was. And so when people went, just like we do when we go to graves and we remember our loved ones, when people went, there was a stone that was moved and the tomb was empty. And people might be saying, well, they were trying to hide this. Why would hundreds, thousands of people want to die for that lie? See, i got to tell you, this is, it's staggering that we end up seeing that Paul is pointing to a resurrected and exalted God. And how do we say exalted? Well, it's because there's a decision. Remember, we started this morning of saying that decisions are important, but Paul points to what the decision is going to look like. It means that at the name of Jesus, at the sound of Jesus, that people will bow and they will acknowledge with their lips. And so whenever we look at this, what we have to understand is that Jesus' identity as God has implications for your identity. And you either accept him or you reject him. There is no fence that you can stand on. It's one or the other. And so Jesus comes along and his whole life, his whole ministry, his whole message has everything to do with his identity as the son of God. And so let me be clear with you this morning. Whenever we look at this and look at these three options, we cannot look at it and say, well, which is is the most possible? That's not what we have to deal with. The question is, which is most probable? 
And when we start looking at that, we have to understand that Jesus identified himself, and when he identified, his actions and his words followed suit. And my plea to you is that if you have been trying and going as hard as you can, trying to be the God in your life, that today you would jump off of a fence and you would choose either to accept or to reject. And my prayer is, is that you would accept the one true God of the universe because he so lovingly came. And he so lovingly came to be enough for you and your life. We have to wrestle with that. So we have two options. For those of you in here that have never surrendered your life to God, I want uh, to give you that opportunity here in just a minute. For those of you that say, well, I have already done this. How does this impact my life? Well, it goes back to what Paul's writing in Philippians 2. That you are to live out the identity that Jesus presented to those that are sitting in this room that come here and gather and call Wheaton Bible Church their church, that you are to be the selfless servant, to humble, to be making uh, Paul in many ways full of joy because of the unity that is found here. Now, for those of you that have never done this, you might be going, well, how many steps does it take? And I just want to tell you it's one step. I want to put a a prayer up on uh, the screen. I think we have it. Um, And I just want to encourage you that you end up, that you'll pray this prayer. You don't have to pray it out loud. I'm not going to ask you to stand up or anything like that. But I want you to just to, to declare that today is the day that Jesus becomes Lord in your life. So I want to invite everybody uh, to just be quiet in this moment and to be looking at this. For some of you, maybe you just need to reconnect with God. For others of you, you need to take this step. But just pray this prayer, and you can pray it with me. Dear God, thank you for loving me and for sending your son to die for my sins. Knowing Jesus is God, I want to turn away from my sinful life and receive Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And now, as your child, I turn my entire life over to you. Amen. Now here's the deal. If that's something, if that's a decision that you made here, I want you to know we don't want you to go about it alone. We want to help you. We want to walk with you in that. And so if you have your bulletin, I want to encourage you, the way that we can do this and and help you with it is you can take out uh, your bulletin. There is a connect card in that bulletin. And you can just write out some information, write out whatever you're comfortable with and put it there and just indicate that this was a decision that was made. And we want to contact you. We're not going to stop by unexpectedly, but we want to help you with the next steps of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so I want to give you the opportunity to just fill that out. And as the offering plates come, you can just drop it in there and later this week, somebody will connect with you. And if you're going, well, I, I want to talk to somebody right now. After this service, I'll be down front. I would love the opportunity to talk with you. So I want to invite the ushers forward now at this time, and we're going to take our offering. And so if you're visiting with us today, don't feel like you have to give. Uh, really, this service is a gift to you. But we want uh, to give back to God. And so because of that, we're going to take this offering and these the, the finances here are used to really uh, expand God's kingdom and make sure that his name is known.
Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that your son came and he claimed to be God. And because he claimed, he lived out that identity so that we could understand who he is. So I pray that each and every day we would surrender to that. That we would understand that it makes an incredible impact on our lives. So if we're still trying to decide which way, may we just be pushed in many ways by your spirit to jump off the fence, to accept you, and to walk with you. And so, Lord, we give you this time. We give you these, this gift that you've blessed us with, and I ask that you would use the, the funds that are given today to expand your kingdom, to make an impact in the lives in our community. And so lead us in that. And it's your name I pray.